This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. In this episode, we've got a two-parable mini-catechesis on prayer by the Son of God himself. Jesus is going to tell the story of the persistent widow and the unjust judge first, and then the story about the Pharisee and the publican. And it must be noted that these are strange metaphors for Jesus to make. Jesus has told us all along how loving and caring our Father is and how terrible sin is. But here he casts God as uncaring and indifferent, in the parable anyway. Then he shows us an unrighteous, righteous man and a righteous sinner. What he wants to do is powerfully put across how sovereign, majestic, and other God is. But that's not what I'm mostly going to talk about. I'm actually going to talk about some very practical ideas about prayer that come out of these parables and then touch on narcissism. And then, just for fun, share some common Catholic phrases that show that we have deeply imbibed these lessons. So we're going to start at the very beginning of Luke chapter 18. Because like several of the parables we've read, these are only found in Luke. It's one of the great benefits of Luke is he delivers these great stories like Good Samaritan and the prodigal son that we've never heard elsewhere. So let's start with the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Vindicate me against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will vindicate her, or she will wear me out by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So first, this is an unsettling and confusing parable in which God is an unjust judge who refuses to answer us unless we bug him long enough. What's up with that? Jesus seems to compare God to a self-serving, uncaring bureaucrat and says we should pray to him like a powerless victim, begging a powerful bad man for what is due to us, even though he does not care. And this is a positive thing. Luke knows the parable is going to be a tough one to understand, so he tells us the meaning right away. He begins, Jesus told his disciples a parable about the necessity for them to pray always without becoming weary. So I'm not sure if elsewhere he ever starts a parable off by giving away the lesson, but I think he wants to avoid confusion here because the situation he describes is dire. A widow who would have been utterly without status or resources in the ancient world wants a just decision for me against my adversary. 
The judge is unwilling to help her for a long time and describes himself this way, I neither fear God nor respect any human being. He does finally answer the prayer, reasoning that the woman annoyingly keeps bothering me and fearing that she will finally come and strike me, in one translation. He gives her the just decision she's looking for, not because he loves her or embraces justice, but because he wants her to go away. How does this make sense? St. Augustine warns us that the judge is not to be taken as an image of God. Because God does love us, God is absolute justice, and God does not want us to go away. But Jesus says something important. Pay attention to what the dishonest judge says. Will not God then secure the rights of his chosen ones who call on him day and night? Jesus Christ himself told us to, so let's pay attention to what the unjust judge says. He says he knows that the widow won't stop bothering him and that she might even get violent. In other words, the widow is persistent, insistent, and passionate. She won't give up, and she will put her whole body and soul into her demand, placing herself in front of the judge, getting up in his face. This is exactly the kind of effort God expects from Moses. In the famous story, when Amalek comes to fight the Israelites in battle, Moses climbs to the top of a hill. You've probably heard this. As long as he persists in prayer and puts his whole body and soul into it, raising his hands up, Israel wins. Whenever he stops, Israel starts to lose. Moses gets to see in a day what the widow has to learn over a long time. God wants us to pray and not stop, to put our whole selves into the exercise, body and soul. It's important to note what this putting our body and soul into it looks like. With the widow, it means getting up in the face of the judge. With Moses, it means being willing to stand on a hill with his arms outstretched like Christ on the cross. For the Israelites, down below, it means doing violent battle with a foe. This is what happens in many human examples. For a human example, I recently heard the story from Father Gabriel Landis at St. Benedict's Abbey here on the campus of Benedict College. He talks about how a woman nagged him so much, I think he was uh, working at an engineering firm, and when a woman nagged him so much to go to RCIA that he eventually just got worn down and went. Then a monk kept nagging him to check out the Abbey, and now he's a priest. So this is a human example. The woman and monk's nagging didn't change the woman and the monk. It changed Father Gabriel. But our prayer to God doesn't change God. It changes us. The Moses story is a really clear example of this. God wanted to make sure that Moses didn't think God was his lackey. If anything, Moses is God's lackey. If God says jump, Moses says how high. And it doesn't happen the other way around. When we ask God for something, there's no guarantee that we will even get it. And there's no requirement on God's side that he has to do what we say. But in the case of the woman in the parable, the prayer also changed her rather than the judge. The woman in the parable had to find interior resources to not give up. She had to continually renew her dedication to justice. She had to continually face the humiliation of begging for what was rightfully hers. And continually facing humiliation is the one and only thing that makes us humble. Or let's look at a more positive example. 
Compare the widow's request to when you have to ask your IT department for a new computer. This is a story from personal experience from actually some years ago. The first time you ask to update your computer, your reasons may be hasty and superficial, but the more you have to focus on the request, because it gets turned down, the more you gain humility and wisdom. You realize that not just you, but plenty of others need better equipment also. As you refine your case, you realize that you could be a lot more productive with or without it, and you see how it would truly fit everyone else's needs. The first time you ask for a new computer, you want to solve a problem in your life quickly. The seventh time you ask for it, you want to solve problems in everyone's life. It works the same way in prayer. If you pray and don't get what you want, it might cause you to look at your prayer more carefully and interrogate yourself. Why am I asking for that? Am I right to ask for that? Maybe I should be asking for this instead. And it makes you interrogate the scriptures more. You may be like me and you may think, wait, God, didn't you say ask and you shall receive? Isn't that something you've committed to? And that might drive you to scripture where you'll look up the phrase and find that it says, ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. So you'll learn, he didn't just say to ask, he said to seek. That requires persistent effort like the widows. He didn't just say to seek, he said to knock. That means he doesn't just want to give us things, he wants to have a relationship with us. So getting no answer from God helps you gain a better understanding of yourself and of God. It also helps you grow in another way. You end up having to reach out to others for help. This is something Moses had to learn. First, Moses learned that it was impossible for his side to win if he didn't raise his hands. Then he learned that it's impossible for him to keep his hands raised long enough for his side to win. So Moses has to enlist the help of friends, Aaron and Hur, who literally hold his arms up to get the win. The widow never gets help in her prayers, but we absolutely should. Then we're not facing the judge alone. A group of us is raising up the question together. Where a quick and painless answer would teach us to ask thoughtlessly and alone, a delayed answer with others leads us to ask mindfully and in community. Next, Jesus says, Will not God then secure the rights of his chosen ones who call out to him day and night? Will he be slow to answer them? I tell you, he will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. Well, these words seem to contradict both the story Jesus just told and our personal experience. He has said it took the widow a long time to get what she asked for. How is it that he now claims justice will be done speedily? Well, as with many lessons of Jesus, there's a paradox here that only makes sense once you have practiced what he's asking. In the past, I've hazarded guesses as to what speedily might mean here. First of all, he doesn't promise a one-for-one -one satisfaction for our desires. He promises justice. In doing so, he is promising more than what we ask for, not less. Because after all, without justice, nothing is satisfying. With justice, anything is satisfying. But justice not being the thing we asked for doesn't necessarily satisfy us at first. Second, he promises to answer our requests speedily. He does not, however, promise that we will see the answers speedily. Often, evidently, we don't. But I'm not sure if I'm satisfied with those answers anymore. They feel a little bit like spin to me, like trying to 
cover over the fact that, well, okay, Jesus says that he'll answer these things speedily, but it doesn't really work that way. So my new answer now, after practicing prayer, persistent prayer, over and over again prayer for what I want, my new answer is this. The more you truly persist in prayer, the more you will realize just how much God is already giving you what you want. If you're praying for justice like the widow, you discover you have a higher justice already, a justice where God is filling you with good things that your adversary, the unjust, can't even dream of and could never give you. The more you pray, the more you see God's hand all around you in the beauty, truth, and goodness that you receive continually, which I've been talking about for the last couple episodes, moment to moment. And the more you pray, the more you realize that the thing you want is not what you need. And the thing you need is what you never thought to ask for, but receive in superabundance anyway, every day, all the time. But then the parable comes to its ominous ending, which is just kind of like a mic drop, the way Jesus lets it hang there. He says, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Ouch. It's a very good question. Do we have the kind of faith in our good and loving father that the widow had in the unjust judge? She knew that he and only he could help her. Do we know that God can help us way more than we can help ourselves? Or do we give up and try to get what we can on our own? The widow trusted that she could eventually wear down the judge. Do we trust God even that much? Do we truly believe that God loves us and has our best interests at heart and will give us what we need? Or have we kind of given up on him? And do we have her humility? She knew she was powerless and could only beg. Do we pray like a widow or like a rich, important person who is owed something from God and a little bit ticked that he hasn't snapped to yet? The widow's humility led to obedience. She didn't give up on the judicial system and try to get what she wanted some other way. She didn't decide she would get her version of justice no matter what, judge or no judge. Have we given up on God and his way, the Catholic Church, and its visible hierarchy? Have we decided that the church is filled with unjust judges and we know better than Pope Francis or the bishops in communion with him or the pastor they assigned us? Have we decided we are smarter than the church about the liturgy, about right and wrong, about politics, about doctrine? It's hard to be a widow who has to rely on an unjust judge, and yet, here we are. Like it or not, a powerless widow is what we are, and only faith, which necessarily entails humility and obedience, will save us. But remember, God is not an unjust judge, and he repays faith with peace, love, and joy, speedily and forever. Do you believe that's true? Don't answer yes too soon, because the next parable is about someone who was absolutely sure that he was spiritually in tune with God and, well, we'll have to see. This is the very next story Jesus tells, the very next parable in Luke chapter 18. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, this is awkward. Jesus is God, and he's been listening to us pray all our lives. And after all he has heard, he wants to make sure we hear how this sounds from his perspective. He asks us a question he already knows the answer to. Are our prayers, yours and mine, more like the proud petitioner who thinks he is doing pretty good in his spiritual life? Or are they more like the sad sinner who knows he isn't doing very well at all? I think that for my part, I can recognize that my prayer is more often like the Pharisees. I pray as if I were the center of the universe, my own universe, and God's too. Thank you that I'm not like these others, for I, at least, go to Mass frequently, and I dress up for Mass too, not like that guy. And I pay attention too. I mean, I'm going to start paying attention now because that's the kind of guy I am. Or our prayer can be an exercise in sour grapes. Thank you that I'm not greedy like so-and-so, we say, because we haven't been able to make as much money as so-and-so, try as we might. This prayer can also come disguised as a petition when we pray, please help so-and-so to convert from their sinful ways, while we forget that we, too, need conversion from our sinful ways and from our pride. When we pray this way, we think of ourselves as the teacher's pet in God's classroom. When Adam and Eve first ate the fruit, it was because the serpent promised that they would be like gods. We are proud, probably, that we didn't eat that fruit, but we act like we did. We are legends in our own minds. We are so impressed with ourselves that we close off the channels God has to reach us. And just so you know, it's statistically very likely that you and I are more like the proud Pharisee than the humble publican. Luke begins by saying, Jesus addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness. And if you ask those who know us, the chances are they would put us, you and me, in that group. Nearly 90% of respondents thought Christians were judgmental and hypocritical in a Barna poll in 2007. Barna is an evangelical Christian research group that does a lot of great polling of Christian opinions. But this poll was of non-Christians, and nearly 90% of respondents thought Christians were judgmental and hypocritical. In a 2022 poll, while Christians described themselves as giving, compassionate, loving, and respectful, non-Christians described us as hypocritical, judgmental, self-righteous, and arrogant. That sounds a lot like we have a high view of ourselves that others see right through. Luke also says the parable is for those who despised everyone else. And whether we are right-leaning or left-leaning, that probably includes us too. Research reported in the 2021 article, Conservatives and Liberals Are Wrong About Each Other, suggests that a lot of us tend to despise each other. Self-identified conservatives estimate that nearly 63% of liberals are so close-minded they want politically incorrect speakers banned from campuses. In fact, only about 33% of liberals showed even an inkling of agreement with that. Liberals thought that 57% of conservatives were unwelcoming and hostile to immigrants, but only 22% 
expressed opinions that could be taken in that way. So even at the most generous you can be, it seems like we get each other wrong by a two to one margin. So the chances are that Jesus is describing you and me when he describes how the proud Pharisee in the story says, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income. And that's another way we imitate the Pharisee. We pick the worst possible role models to compare ourselves with and then become very proud that we're so much better than them. By comparing himself to hardened sinners, he is as absurd as a runner who compares himself to crippled people. Or like when we look at our lives and compare them to people who haven't had the gifts we've had. We had disciples of Christ who reached us in our lives. We had the grace of conversion. We had all sorts of opportunities that we, thank God, took advantage of. They possibly didn't. The Pharisee's pride makes him imagine that the rest of humanity is bad. We do this all the time, judging those of another political party or religion or other Catholics who aren't like us. Ultimately, though, I believe the Pharisee is a narcissist. So likely are we who live in 21st century America. Our times in the West have been summed up as a culture of narcissism. It's not just that we're selfish, Narcissism describes our tendency to constantly see our life from a self-adulatory remove, as if we were the leading character in a heroic or tragic film of our life, or documentary at least. Social media has turbocharged our narcissism by posting the stories of our lives, leaving our faults out of the narrative and filtering our flaws out of the photos. We can start to believe our press releases and imagine that we really match the perfect image we are showing the rest of the world. But human beings have never been immune from this excessive pride, at least not since the fall. In fact, early Christian writer Martyrius says we get this tendency directly from the great angel of light whose pride drove him out of heaven. Now he is always at our side with the same trick up his sleeve. He says, quote, Satan lives in ambush ready to catch you by surprise at the very time of thanksgiving. He makes you drunk on pride in the lovely and sweet sound of your own voice, the beauty of your chants that are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. The result is that you do not realize that these belong to God and not to yourself. End quote. As soon as you take the bait, though, he says, quotes, He will get up and accuse you before God just as he did with your fellow Pharisee in the temple. End quote. But you can beat narcissism in prayer the same way you can beat it on social media by refusing to take the devil's bait. The Pharisee, of course, took it right away. You see the clever detail in Jesus's parable where the Pharisee said to himself, God, and his prayer goes on from there. St. Ignatius of Loyola struggled with his own narcissism and came up with the remedy of reviewing his day to get as objective a view of himself as possible. First, he reviewed all the great things God had given him in his day and creation. Then he reminded himself that God was present to him at all times during the day. Then he rummaged through his memory to see how well he accepted all those great things God gave him. So he looked at both his successes and his failures. He bared his wounds before God and asked him to heal them with his mercy. 
He learned what the widow from the first gospel parable and the tax collector from the second one learned. I've noted before the psalm that puts it so beautifully. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and those who are crushed in spirit he saves. Or as the book of Sirach puts it, the prayer of the lowly pierces the clouds. It does not rest till it reaches its goal. So we have to ask, if we could interrupt the Pharisee at his self-centered prayer, what lesson would we want him to take from this? Because that's probably the same lesson that we need to learn. The first lesson is to be like the tax collector and pray, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Bishop Robert Barron says he does this by praying the Jesus prayer often. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have taken to doing that whenever my mind is wandering during Mass or during prayer or if I'm just surfing on brainwaves of self-appreciation in a way that isn't helpful. But the tax collector's self-abasement isn't the only approach to God available, though. I always think it's hilarious when this gospel comes up in Sunday readings because the church pairs it with a second reading from St. Paul. Now, St. Paul was also a Pharisee, and his words at first sound very much like the Pharisee in the gospel. He says, I have competed well, and the crown of righteousness awaits me. Isn't that kind of the self-congratulation Jesus criticizes? Here, I'll read the whole passage from St. Paul's second letter to Timothy. Quote, I am already being poured out like a libation, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have competed well. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, the crown of righteousness awaits me, which the Lord, the just judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearance. At my first defense, no one appeared on my behalf, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the proclamation might be completed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil threat and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. End quote. So a lot of that looked like self-congratulation to me. So I put some of the statements side by side to see if it was true. As I've said before, I have these mini faith crises, and this was kind of one of them. But I found some important differences between the two passages. The parables... Pharisee says, thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity. But Paul sees the crown of righteousness not as his alone, by rights. He specifically sees it as something the Lord, the just judge, will award, not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearance. The Pharisee says, I fast twice a week, which is admirable, but puts him in control of his own life, which he parcels out to God on his own terms. St. Paul says, I am already being poured out like a libation. His whole life is being poured out, not by Paul, but by God, for God. The Pharisee brags, I pay tithes on my whole income, making his strength the center of his spiritual life. But St. Paul says, the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, putting the Lord's strength at the center. But the biggest difference between the two is their location The Pharisee took up his position in the temple area, doubtless a position of honor, to talk to himself in prayer. Paul is writing from prison, where he's been imprisoned for the faith, and he's writing not for his own benefit, but to encourage Timothy to be holier. 
The Pharisee sees himself as his own savior by his good works and wants to separate himself from others. St. Paul sees God as the main character in his life's salvation and wants to bring others to salvation with him, saying, the Lord will rescue me from every evil threat. So don't be afraid to seek out and find an objective view of yourself. At first, it might mean that you have to beat your breast continually with head bowed at the back of the church, but it will also help you see with greater clarity just how much God has blessed you, not because you are better or worse than the rest of humanity, but because he loves you as much as he loves them. Each Mass actually takes us through the paces of a healthy self-conception. At the beginning of Mass, we do just what the publican did. He stood off at a distance and would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and prayed, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Church makes sure we all do this, When we pray the penitential act at the beginning of Mass, we literally beat our breasts like the publican and beg mercy for our fault, our fault, our grave fault. Then we copy the publican's words during the Kyrie eleison, the Lord have mercy prayer. Both times we should remind ourselves that we are at Mass as sinners, not saints, seeking healing, not showing off. We build up through the various prayers of the Mass to the moment when we humbly ask to be worthy to receive God into our very body. God agrees to come to us just like he did 2,000 years ago, body, blood, soul, and divinity. I must admit that I'm not great at the whole humble, persistent prayer thing. When I'm doing a holy hour, I'm often reminded of the story of St. Benedict Labre, the homeless saint who spent a lot of time praying in France's churches in the 18th century. They say that whenever he heard someone coming, he would stop kneeling and sit instead so he wouldn't look too holy. I do the opposite. When I hear someone coming, I start kneeling. In fact, though, Jesus has been listening to my prayers and seeing how I act my whole life long, and so there's no sense in trying to hide from him. The best policy is to tune everyone else out and show him who you are, wounds, pride, and all. That's the only way he can heal you. Never forget that the tax collector is the one in the story who impresses Jesus. And the more you pray, the more you talk to God, the more you will find that you do, in fact, have a real status with God, but it's entirely due to his will, not your worth. The Jewish people were his chosen ones. We are his adopted daughters and sons. We have real sacramental participation in his Trinitarian life. And that gives us access to his power if we pray persistently. But never forget those chilling words that he ended the parable with. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I want to share some evidence that he might indeed find some faith on earth. And these are, as promised, the everyday Catholic sayings that I think show remarkable wisdom informed by what we've just read. So, mea culpa is one. It's a jokey Catholic way of saying sorry. And if you're very sorry, you add a maxima before culpa. Another one from The Sound of Music, but elsewhere as well, is God never closes a door without opening a window. This expresses the optimism that the no that we get from God is not necessarily his final answer. Another one is, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. It's a great Catholic saying expressing humility before God and recognizing him as a sovereign person who can do what he wants. Another one is pray as though everything depends on God, work as though everything depends on you. 
This is a saying of St. Ignatius of Loyola that's so great it ended up in the catechism. And then the last one I'll share is, she has the patience of a saint. It's a common Catholic compliment, usually about a wife of a husband who could use some work on his issues. But you hear this from many people, Catholic or not. And I think it's awesome that patience has been branded as a Catholic saint thing. But it's a great way to think of the widow and publican in today's parable, who kept up their prayers. They had the patience of a saint, demanding that their own stories be invaded by God's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story.